Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode number five, Alexander Nevsky. Last episode, we saw the end of the Kievian dominance and we introduced the Mongols, who invaded the land of the Rus and subjugated almost all its people. To 20th century historians, Alexander Nevsky is a beacon of light in a time filled with utter darkness. It is 1240, and the mighty Mongols rule most of Russia. Now known as the Golden Horde, they care little about governing. They only wanted their tribute from their subjects. They encouraged internecine wars, knowing that this led to a weakening of any potential threat to their rule. Woe to those who incur the wrath of their Mongol overlords. Pay late or too little and expect retribution. Try to rebel and death awaits. The Horde knew that this policy was the way to keep things running smoothly. Here's where I'd like to clear up some questions about who were the members of the Golden Horde. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, that the Mongols in their trek across Asia either killed their enemies or assimilated them into their army. As they became known as the Golden Horde, they had different groups of peoples who they assimilated run their affairs for them. One was known as the Tartars, or the Tatars, which was a Turkic-speaking tribe who followed Timuchin early in the century. These were the representatives who oversaw the Russian provinces for the Horde. Some historians call the occupying forces Tatars, some Mongols, and some use the term Golden Horde exclusively. I will use the terms interchangeably throughout the podcast in the future, but by the time of Peter the Great, we will only use the term Tatars. The son of Yaroslav II, soon to be Grand Prince of Novgorod and Vladimir, Alexander was born into this dark time. He was to show a combination of daring, political savvy, remarkable generalship, and an astute ability to understand the political winds. At first, those unaware of Russian history might wonder about the fighting prowess of Alexander, as their supposed great enemy was the Golden Horde, and they were to rule over Russia for more than 200 additional years. But that was not the threat Alexander was to be famous for defeating. No, there were others who were eyeing Russian territory and their religion, who posed the threat Alexander was to vanquish. The Roman Catholic Pope in 1240, Gregory IX, wanted to Catholicize the Russian people, so he prodded Swedish general Jarl Berger to invade and convert Novgorod. Sailing up the Neva River in July of 1240, Berger was met by a relatively small army led by Grand Prince Alexander, who stopped them at the shores of the Neva. He sank a number of ships and forced them to retreat. This was no small feat, as Berger was an accomplished and excellent general. Now known as Alexander Nevsky after the battle he won on the Neva River, he began to run afoul of the pesky Novgorodian Vetch, which so annoyed him. He left the city and resigned his title as Grand Prince of Novgorod. Ah, uh, but the Catholics were not done. They had a real contempt for the Eastern Orthodox Church, whom they blamed for the fall of the holy city of Jerusalem. Any country that claimed to be Orthodox was an enemy to all Catholic nations. This caused them to start 
what has been called the Northern Crusades. The next marauding band hell-bent on conversion was the German Teutonic Knights. They first captured the city of Peskov, and then they pinched off a major trade route to Novgorod. This scared the people of Novgorod so much that they begged Alexander to return. And return he did. In short order, Alexander Nevsky and his troops attacked and overran the Peskov fort, and on April 5, 1242, a day revered in Russian history, with the Teutonic Knights in full retreat, Alexander's army fought a pitched battle on the ice of Lake Piepus, known to history as the Battle of the Ice. Alexander, along with his brother Andre, maneuvered their troops to force the knights deeper onto the frozen lake, where their heavy armor caused the ice to collapse and drown many of them. There's a lot of debate about the size of the armies. Some, trying to minimize the loss, claim there were only 30 knights. But that seems woefully low, and it's equally as unlikely that the numbers were in the tens of thousands as some who really want to embellish this battle have claimed. Regardless of the numbers, as Jeffrey Hosking says in his book, Russia and the Russians, A History, quote, These facts, however, scarcely detract from the importance of the battle, which established the Narva River and Lake Piepus as a permanent dividing line between orthodoxy and Western forms of Christianity. Over the next few years, the Lithuanian armies made numerous invasion attempts, all of which failed. With a burgeoning influence on his people and a growing fear of having the Mongols turn their attention toward Novgorod, Alexander first went to the court of Batu Khan and then to the great Khan himself, Ogedai, to humble himself and allow Novgorod to be annexed into the Golden Horde's kingdom. According to many historians, this was a brilliant move by Alexander, as it not only protected Novgorod from Mongol attacks, which were sure to come, but it bound the horde to protect the city from the threatening Swedes, Finns, and Lithuanians. Some historians, who are in a considerable minority, disagree and think that what Alexander did immeasurably harmed the Russians by extending the length of the Mongol yoke on Russia. My opinion is with the majority here, as it would have been highly unlikely that Novgorod could have come, you know, been saved from the Mongols. They probably would have come under their control anyway, and probably with a great loss of life. The Mongols, always impressed by military achievement and valor, had a great deal of respect for Alexander. So much so that when the princedom of Vladimir became open, Batu chose Alexander to fill the spot. Now, leader of both principalities, Alexander's influence over the Russian people grew. The Mongols weren't always pro-Alexander, as his younger brother Andre betrayed him and persuaded and likely bribed the Khan to give him the title of Grand Prince of Novgorod for five years before Alexander turned the tables on Andre and reclaimed his title. In 1253, led by his son Basil, the combined forces of Novgorod and Vladimir repelled and expelled a Lithuanian army. In 1256, Alexander led his forces to defeat Swedish invaders, and in 1262, he once again beat back an army of Germans. 
Because of his numerous victories, many thought that this was the time to throw off the yoke of the Mongols. Alexander, being the prudent man, knew that it would be futile to resist and revolt against the horde. In 1257, he had to use his own troops against his own people to subdue a revolt against conscription and taxes by the people of Novgorod. It cannot be stressed enough that the greatness of Alexander Nevsky was not his military victories, which, beneficial, were not long-lasting. No, his gift to the Russian people were their very existence. As I mentioned before, if he had used his military prowess against the Mongols, he would have undoubtedly lost, and the very existence of the Russian people would have been in doubt. He was, and should always be, considered one of the saviors of Russia. He certainly made sure that Novgorod was never to be conquered by the Mongols or any other invader. Unlike any other Russian city, there were never any Mongol troops stationed in his city, and no tax collector ever came from the horde. He took care of all of that. It didn't come cheaply, though, as he had a large financial price to pay for those privileges. So great was the respect that the Mongols had for Alexander that in the face of a rebellion and refusal to pay taxes by the people of Rostov, Alexander stepped in and halted a Mongol army hell-bent on destroying the city and slaughtering the inhabitants. He asked that he be allowed to settle the issue, which he did without bloodshed. What was interesting about Novgorod was that in all the times before and after Alexander Nevsky's reign, while always an economic powerhouse, only during his time as Grand Prince did their political power match their economic influence. The burden of being the savior of the people must have been a tremendous weight on the man, as on November 15, 1263, at the age of 43, Alexander Nevsky, hero of so many battles and protector of his people from the barbarian Golden Horde, died. So great was the impact of his death that the Metropolitan, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, proclaimed that the sun of Russia had set. Even with all of the praise heaped upon Alexander, not all is rosy when looking back at his reign. The common man bore the brunt of the taxes due to the Mongols. The wealthy and powerful, when presented with increased taxation, merely passed it on down the line. When the people arose and objected to the burden placed upon them, it wasn't the Mongols who quashed them, it was their own people. This system was to continue through the Tsars and into the Soviet era, although those who were unrepentant communists might dispute that. The boyars, the elite class, was to subjugate the people for centuries. But to blame Alexander Nevsky as someone solely to blame should look at human history and understand that slavery and serfdom is not unique to Russia. It was part of human existence at the time. So important to the Russian psyche was Alexander Nevsky that numerous awards were named after him over the centuries. Peter the Great designed the medal named the Order of Alexander Nevsky, which was first awarded in 1725 by his wife Catherine I, and revived in July of 1942 by Joseph Stalin when the German army waged the Great Patriotic War with the Soviet Union. 
He was additionally canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church under the reign of Ivan the Terrible. Classical composer Sergei Prokofiev wrote a beautiful piece of music called Alexander Nevsky, and Soviet movie director Sergei Eisenstein even produced a movie about his life with the same name. You can actually see a clip on YouTube of the battle scene between the army of Novgorod against the Teutonic Knights, the Battle of the Ice. Just search for Alexander Nevsky. There is much debate amongst historians about many of the events of his life, but his influence on the future of Russia is undeniably powerful. After Alexander died, Batu gave Alexander, Alexander's brother, Yaroslav of Tver, the title of Grand Prince of Vladimir. He was not the man, nor he could be the man, Alexander was. For those of you interested in sources to learn more about Russian history, I'd like to suggest a book I mentioned earlier, which is Jeffrey Hosking's work, Russia and the Russians, A History. Over 600 pages long, complete with illustrations and photographs, it covers the totality of Russian history in a well-written manner. Next episode, we track the ensuing years of the Mongols' waning dominance and the beginning of the rise of the city that was to become the center of Russian rulers for the next 400-plus years, Moscow. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please visit the podcast website at RussianRulersHistory.com or become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History where you can leave a comment, make a suggestion, or ask a question. So as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.